I wanted to say something real quick before we get started in, in the lesson. Um, as we keep turning calendars, it becomes more impressionable uh, on my heart as to how long I've been here. <laughs> um, I moved here in the, the spring of 2000, and so that's why it's easy for me to mark off time because I got a nice round number when I started here. I don't have to do any hard math, but this then begins my 18th year here. Um, and I just appreciate so much this church, and it means a whole lot to me uh, to be able to be with you this long, to grow together. Uh, we've grown together numerically. We've certainly grown together spiritually. Um, and, and to share with you some of the joys that I, I get these from time to time, it just, I think it particularly struck my heart this last week because of the the turning of the calendar that... I continue to get from time to time these emails from places around the country and around the world um, talking about how they follow along with us in our studies here and they're reading online and they're studying online and they're listening online from people in Thailand and in South America and places that are just unbelievable to me that, that people are listening and I want to share that with you because that has a great portion to do with you. Um, somewhere around 2002, when Joe Botha was still here, the 12 of you who even know who he is, um, he he's in web design, and we'd sat down and talked, and we're like, we need to make a website, you know, and and start putting these things online. And so back in 2002, you had a whopping, you know, two sermons a week going up. <laughs> it's all that all it was, was just the, the introduction of that. And because you've allowed me to be here this long, uh, if you've ever been on there, the thing is huge. Uh, because there's 104 sermons every year for 18 years, and that's a whole lot of math that I can't do. <laughs> And it's it's just it says a lot to to you all and, and your kindness, your desire to hear God's word. Um, that, that one of the things that people say is that they enjoy being able to tune in and and, and listen and and hear God's word because unfortunately it seems that's becoming a lost idea. Uh, to be able to just open the scriptures, to read what it says, and move through the text, and here's what God says. Uh, and so I'm grateful to you for that. You have a love for that. Uh, and I'm, I'm fully aware that there's a lot of places I could go that would absolutely hate me for doing that. <laughs> and I appreciate so much the desire that all of you have for the, the love of God's word, that you want to hear it. You don't want to hear anything else. Uh, it's my joy to proclaim it to you, and I appreciate so much you tolerating me uh, all these years. It's hard to think that you, you 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 rolled the dice on me at 25. You know, unbelievable. It's <laughs> the young kid that comes in here, uh, and to be where we are today, I'm humbled by it, and I appreciate all of you so much for that uh, from the very bottom of my heart. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm very devoted uh, to working with you as long as you'll let me keep, keep working here. And I, I enjoy it very much. With that said, 
starting a new book, starting a new series. It's, it's the new year. One of the things that we are focusing on this year is this concept of our purpose. We're calling it called, that we have been called to particular things, a particular purpose. And last week we talked about our purpose as being builders and priests in, in this kingdom as we are working to bring God to the people and bringing people to God. And throughout this year, we're going to be touching on that, not only in the monthly series, but in other lessons that I've wanted to do in things that we do in terms of our worship. I want to talk more. We've done some about the Lord's Supper last year and talk more about that and talk about the collection, talk about prayer, talk about a lot of the things that we do that we keep focused on. There's a purpose behind what we do, and it's not just simply about doing them. The Gospel of Mark is really a a, a great uh, flow into that very idea. This is an amazing Gospel. Uh, And if you are like me growing up, for me, this has been more of one of the neglected Gospels, right? Usually it's Matthew and Luke get the the biggest spotlight and the most attention. And and a lot of people look at Mark and go, well, that's the short one. And that has a lot less details. Let's get some of the bigger ones that give us a fuller picture. And yet the, the Gospel of Mark is amazing, even in how it opens. Sometimes you've had people come up to you and say, um, I have good news and I have bad news. It's not, not, not just the most sinking feeling when somebody says that. You know, saying the good news part is not helpful to the rest of that sentence when somebody says, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. When the Gospel of Mark opens, he just simply says, I have good news. That's what the very first line is. This is the beginning of the good news. I have good news to share with you. And it's important to keep that in mind when we think about what these accounts are doing in the life of Jesus. The gospel account is not bad news. It is not a tragedy. It is nothing of the kind. But it is the announcement of major success. That's what this gospel is. It is a proclamation of good news regarding the success of our Lord and Savior. The gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. The gospel of Luke begins with announcements of John and Jesus' birth. And John begins with Jesus as the eternal word. And Mark just simply begins with, this is the beginning of everything. This is the beginning of everything. This is what we have longed for and waited for. And the Gospel of Mark then is going to explain to us who Jesus is. It's going to explain to us why He came and what it means to follow Him. One of the important lenses that the Gospel of Mark has for us is it's going to show us what discipleship looks like. We're going to see why Jesus came and what it means to be a disciple of His and what it means to follow Him. So often we can look at the Gospel accounts as merely stories of Jesus and one is as good as another and which one's your favorite, you know, and for me, Mark is um, one of my four favorite gospel accounts. We, we need to have that attitude that all of them are precious and, and glorious in their own particular way because they have a different purpose and they are distinct in trying to communicate a beautiful message about Jesus. And I will caution as we go through our study from time to time. 
Sometimes what we have the tendency to do is we will read an account in one of the Gospels and we will go, well, it tells you more about that over here in Matthew or in Luke. And I want us to recognize that by doing so, you are missing what the author by the Holy Spirit is intending for you to see. There is a reason why Mark gives you certain details but leaves out others. This is not just simply, well, let me give you a Reader's Digest of Matthew. He's telling you these things for a purpose. And if he tells you something different than what Luke said or John said or, or, or Matthew says, your eyes should open and go, well, why are you doing that? Why do you say that differently? Why do you present it like that? Why are these details missing? What are you intending the audience to focus on? And so I'm going to encourage us in that in our study of Mark is that we will read it with that lens, not to try to then harmonize the the other gospel accounts and make them all blend together, but in, in fact, accentuate why Mark is unique. What makes it different? And by seeing those differences, we are able to see more clearly the purpose intended by God through this author to present to us this glorious display of Jesus. Verse 1 of Mark 1, the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The first thing that we have to do is take a step back and just simply ask the question, well, what is the gospel? If you've grown up in the pews, you probably have a definition in your mind of what the gospel is. Sometimes we talk about the gospel in terms of the Bible, and yet the scriptures never call the scriptures the gospel. That's not what is intended by that. And sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we will mean, well, it's the message of salvation. And that's a part of the gospel message, but that's not the full idea of what the gospel means. The big picture that we see in the Old Testament, when they start speaking about the proclamation of the good news, is a message that God is enthroned and is reigning. For example, Isaiah 52 and verse 7 How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Notice this full picture of the Gospel. The Gospel is gladness. It is peace. It is salvation. It is a message that proclaims your God reigns. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, Go up on the high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Now what's the message? What are they proclaiming as good news notice what he says behold your God behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him the picture of good news is the arrival of God And him sitting on the throne. That's what Isaiah has in mind. Proclaim the good news. Tell it on the mountaintops. But what are they saying? That your God reigns. Behold, God has come. 
And He is bringing with Him His reward. And He is bringing with Him recompense. He comes in might. This is the message. In fact, when we go to the New Testament days in the Greco-Roman world, that is exactly how the word gospel, that Greek word behind it, was used is it was always speaking of some kind of victory that was brought about by a general or the ascension of one of the emperors and his great reign and rule. There's a great historical uh, artifact that we have that talks about declaring that with Augustus Caesar, he declared good news. Same word. And how did he declare it? Because he came bringing peace. And broad order. Well, how do you do that? Well, by conquering much of the world at that time. And that was good news. In fact, because he had brought peace to the world and established this empire at that time, people then looked back upon him at the day of his birth and described it as the beginning of the good news and then deified him, calling him God and proclaimed the universal impact of what Augustus Caesar did. So even in Roman ears and even in a Greco-Roman world, if you spoke of this good news, this gospel, you would have heard the exact same thing. You would have heard a message about a ruler who has come bringing peace and proclaiming how he has brought order and brought about his rule. And that's what Mark then starts with. But it's not the proclamation of Caesar. It's the proclamation of Jesus as king. Is the proclamation of Him as the Anointed One, the Son of God who has come to reign. In fact, one of the things that you will see as a key theme as we go through the Gospel of Mark together is that we are going to see God through Jesus establishing His rule over creation. We're going to see Him establishing His rule over Israel, over the nations, over the Roman Empire, over all creation, over all peoples. It's one of the reasons why when you read the Gospel of Mark, have you ever noticed the massive amount of miracles that are contained in that Gospel? is this is the establishment of the reign of God. Here is the power of God on display who rules over Israel, over the empire, over the world, over creation, over nature, over peoples. Jesus has come and He is reigning. And notice though, verse 1 though, that sentence doesn't end there in talking about the arrival or the beginning of this good news that is about to happen. A lot of our translations begin a new sentence in verse 2, but even in English, you don't really start sentences by saying as, and even in the Greek, you don't do that really either. It is a connection directly back to the very first sentence. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written by Isaiah. This is the good news. This is the beginning of what Isaiah had talked about. This is now going to describe what Isaiah had prophesied is now beginning at this moment in Mark's Gospel. What the author is doing for us is showing us that Isaiah is supposed to be our lens for understanding how we read this Gospel. That Mark's good news is the beginning of what Isaiah was proclaiming to be good news. One day, one day, God was going to send one to come and save and deliver and reign. 
And Mark opens his gospel by saying, this is the beginning of what Isaiah talked about. It should be even more striking to us as this gospel opens because this is the only place in all of Mark's gospel where the author comes in and says, a scripture was fulfilled. We're going to read a bunch of places where a person will say, this is what fulfills the scriptures. But this is the only place in Mark's gospel where the author, the narrator, comes in and says, this fulfills what was spoken of. And so again, this lens of Isaiah is very important. And why wouldn't he use Isaiah? As we often call him, the Messianic prophet. Isaiah's picture of comfort and hope of the future to come. Isaiah is a beautiful lens of what was going to happen when Christ came. A few years back, we got to go through Isaiah together. All 66 chapters. Again, what a great congregation to go with me for 66 chapters preaching through the book of Isaiah. And those messages are all now foundational to what Mark wants us to see, that this is the beginning of what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah was prophesying about all these things. And now Mark comes along and says, here it goes. Here's the start. We're taking off now and we are describing this good news. To summarize some of the ideas of Isaiah that we will see in the gospel of Mark. Some of the pictures are these. Isaiah prophesies about a new exodus, about a restoration to come, about renewal and a new creation. The return of God who will reign in Zion. Isaiah has all of these pictures in mind. These big ideas in view. And Mark is going to show us these things. And so my encouragement as we start this this series and start even this lesson this morning is, is not to think of Mark's gospel as just simply another gospel or just another account of Jesus. But you are reading in Mark's gospel the beginning of the good news that Isaiah wrote about now unfolding. Everything that Isaiah was pointing to, Mark says, watch this. Here's all of it now happening before our very eyes. For the rest of our time, I want to look at verses 2 and 3. It's a quotation, you know, I'm quoting from Isaiah. But not only Isaiah, really actually from three prophetic scriptures. And your, your uh, study notes or reference cross-references may even note this for you. That this is a conglomeration of Exodus chapter 23 verse 20, Malachi 3 verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And we shouldn't be thrown by that. You'll notice that that will happen often in the New Testament where the author will take two, three, four scriptures... And merge them all together. Maybe one of my favorites is Romans chapter 3 where he talks about all of our throats are like empty graves. He quotes about seven different passages in Romans 3 and throws them all together. And the reason why that was acceptable is because they are considered to be linked together with a common theme. They're talking about the same thing. They're looking forward to the same idea. And so they can be brought together as interrelated prophecies. And so I want to quickly just give you a a, a flavor, a taste of what these three prophecies were talking about so that we can see Jesus as this gospel opens. 
First in Exodus 23 and verse 20, if you've been in the Exodus study on Sunday night, we've been moving through Exodus and we've been then digging more deeply in that on, on Wednesday night. We've seen this prophecy here in, in Exodus 23, 20, where God is coming to them and he's telling them, I'm going to send this messenger before you. And some translations say, well, my angel before you is interchangeable in the meaning of that. And the context of that was, was absolutely beautiful because God is saying, I'm going to send this one who's going to go before you and he's going to guard your way and he's going to lead you to the place that I prepared you. And in mind there, it's to the promised land. Here we are at Mount Sinai in Exodus 23 and God says, I'm going to send my messenger before you and he's going to guard you and protect you and care for you and bring you into that promised land. He's going to bring you into that place. And his call to the people then was to obey And if they will obey and not turn away from God, but listen to what God has to say, then God was going to bless them richly. That's just the context of what Exodus 23 is is getting at, is God is going to send a messenger before you and you need to listen to him. And in doing so, God will bless. The second quotation, Malachi 3 and verse 1. It is interesting that Malachi takes part of what Exodus 23 said. If you think back to Exodus 23, when God tells the people and is telling Moses, now I'm going to bring you into this place that I've prepared, so do not turn away from me and do not rebel. How did those people do? Unfortunately, there's this whole book of numbers that exists that shouldn't have had to be there if they had all obeyed. We would just be able to do Exodus, Leviticus, and Joshua. We just could have gone right on into the promised land. But instead, they disobey, they rebel. Book of Numbers, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so now you have Malachi come along hundreds of years later, and he uses the same language. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And how beautiful that must have been at that moment when you have a prophet come along and say, those promises, they're not dead yet. They're not over. There is a hope that is to come. And Malachi then brings that forward and saying that this promise still remains. The context of Malachi's prophecy is also interesting. God's going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for his own arrival. When you get to verses 2 and 3, it describes the Lord is going to come into his temple. And he's going to purify the people. He's going to refine them. And so here is Malachi giving the same imagery of a messenger is going to come. And he's going to prepare my way and get the people ready. Because I'm coming to be able to purify. And I'm coming to be able to refine my people so that they can be pleasing to the Lord. And then to Isaiah, the third prophecy, which in your Bibles would be all of verse 3. All of that verse 3 comes from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And if you've studied Isaiah, you know that as you come into chapter 40, the very first words, after all of these prophecies of doom and judgment, comfort, comfort my people. Says the Lord. And God is coming, and it is a message of comfort. Your sins have been paid for, is what the first two verses say. And then verse 3 opens with that there's a voice 
crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight. It is a picture then of being ready for God's coming, a picture of how they need to be purified, set apart and ready for his coming. Have you ever asked this question when you read this, looking at verse 3? There is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Why there? The wilderness will be an important picture in the Gospel of Mark. It will come up again when we look at John in the next paragraph. Where's John baptizing, but he's out in the wilderness. Why wouldn't we proclaim the good news in the city? You know... Comfort my comfort my people, a voice crying out in Jerusalem, right? Let's let's put this downtown. Why is the message in the wilderness? We're going to see people are going all the way out to this wilderness, leaving Jerusalem, people from Judea, all the way out to the desert to see this John figure out here who's baptizing. Why in the wilderness? Well, when you read those Old Testament prophets, you get some beautiful pictures of what the wilderness was about. In our study of Exodus, as you think about the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the wilderness was the staging ground for God's future victory. When you were in the wilderness, you were on the brink of the promised land. You were on the brink of entering into the promises. Think about Israel in the wilderness. Why are they in the wilderness? Because we're about to go to the promised land. We're about to conquer. We're about to enjoy the promises of God. The picture of the wilderness was a picture of hope. It was a picture of the redemptive purposes that God was going to accomplish. You can read the the, the writings of those uh, of the uh, Jewish writers. And they believed that what was going to happen is that they themselves would return to the wilderness. There would be a second exodus that would herald the messianic age. In fact, there's one group that we know of very well that was doing that themselves. The Qumran community had moved out from the city of Jerusalem and were out in the desert because of these prophecies awaiting for the Messiah to come. And they would be the ones ready to be able to retake Jerusalem when the Savior arrived. That's the expectation, is that this voice in the wilderness means there's going to be a new exodus. And that's what Jesus is coming to do, is He's coming to rescue, He's coming to save, He's coming to lead the way. Now, what's the key of the message? Look at the end of verse 3. What's He crying out? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. The cry is that the Lord is coming. And that the people need to get ready for His arrival. Here we live in Palm Beach County. We have a little bit of a sense of that, don't we? When the president arrives, what happens? Well, southern goes bad. Flying goes bad. You know, everything becomes a mess because everybody has to get ready for His arrival. Everything changes. The streets are closed. The airport has changed. All of a sudden, there's half a dozen school buses on the, on the strip and, and on the airport. Everybody's getting ready for his arrival. That's what happens. And this is the idea of the proclamation of your king is coming. 
You need to be ready for His arrival. Make the road straight. Get them paved. Smooth them out. The Lord is coming. Your King is coming. And in those days when you made that proclamation, a city would go out and meet that King on the road and then follow Him back into the city. And that's the imagery that's happening here. Is your God is coming. You need to be ready to go out and meet Him and usher Him in. And here's this great proclamation that Mark opens with. Here is the beginning of the good news. Is the good news of Jesus that Isaiah prophesied about. It is a message that Isaiah spoke about long past. In fact, many prophets were longing for this day. And it is a day of redemption. It is a day of hope. And what it means for those who hear these words is that they would then make themselves ready and prepare. Because there's a common thread in those three quotations of Exodus 23, Malachi 3, and Isaiah 40. I'll show you just a little snippet and then we'll close. Look at Exodus 23, verse 21. After the quotation you have, what are the people supposed to do? Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. There's the rest of what Exodus then talks about. Is when this messenger comes, you better listen to him. You better be ready for him and you better not rebel against him. Malachi 3 verse 1 is what we looked at. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Notice again this imagery of preparation, of getting ready. He's going to refine. You need to get your hearts ready. You need to get your ears listening because He's coming. And Isaiah 40 verse 3 as it says right here, prepare the way of the Lord. Make a straight, a desert, and a highway for our God. Make the path clear. Get things ready. The whole intention then of what the gospel opens up with is Jesus is coming and hearts need to be ready to receive him. This initial quotation simply revolves around this. The beginning of this good news of the enthronement of Jesus and what that means for people is they need to get ready, hearts ready for His coming, to prepare themselves for His arrival, to get ready to pay careful attention, to be ready to be refined, and be ready to prepare His way. This becomes a purpose that we're going to see in, in Mark's Gospel about the disciples. A readiness to be refined, a readiness to pay careful attention, a readiness to prepare His way, to be ready for His arrival. And this is really what the challenge of the Gospel of Mark is going to be. We're going to get to study this really great Gospel. And one of the things that it is going to do, it's going to challenge our thinking on what it means to be a disciple of His. Because the imagery of this proclamation of good news and preparation is the King is coming And you go out to meet him and you follow in the paths that he follows as he comes into the city. 
Most of you know the path that he takes when he comes. And you know how this story ends. And that's the path that's being laid out in the Gospel of Mark. Is the path to glory is a path of suffering. The path of following the Lord and following the King is a path of self-sacrifice. It's a path of giving of yourself. It's to follow the Lord wherever he goes. And he is going to go and he's going to die for the sins of the world. And there is a call for disciples to follow in his steps in sacrificing themselves and giving their lives to follow him. But in the same way, it's a message of hope. Because those who will follow him, there's a place prepared. There is hope that is given to those who will come out with open hearts, with refined hearts. And my encouragement to you, not only in this series, but to even think about this week, is do we have hearts that are refined and ready for his second coming? Are we ready for him to come? In this first call, it was a call for people, you need to get ready. You need to be prepared. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And here was this proclamation. He's coming. Get ready. Get the hearts ready. Get the roads ready. And here we stand all these years later. And it's easy for all of the time to pass by and think. not going to happen I don't need to be ready I don't need to be refined I don't need to have my heart purified I don't need to be prepared yet so many of the stories that Jesus would tell would be a picture of you need to be prepared you need to be ready where is your heart before God today where is the, the, the place of your heart are you in a place now where you are prepared for your Lord's coming? Are you ready for His arrival? For the King to arrive at this moment, would you be able to say, I am ready. I am ready to greet Him. I am ready to go on to the place that He has prepared. I am ready for that moment. Or is that thought a chilling thought? And that today would be the opportunity... To get your heart right with God before it's too late. That we serve such a gracious God. Who allows all of this time. To pass by. So that none would perish. But that all could come to repentance. Today is your opportunity. Today is your day to have your heart right with God. To change your life. To turn away from your sins. To be ready for his arrival. If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is an important starting point in your beginning walk with God. That you first believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. That you decide to turn away from a life of sinning, a life of self, of doing what we please, recognizing that we are not the ones on the throne, but God is on the throne. That's the good news. He's enthroned. We submit to him and we obey him. Confessing Him to be our King, our Lord, our Savior, the Son of God, who came into this world and died for our sins. Be buried with Him in water for the forgiveness of your sins and enter into a glorious hope that you 
can be ready for His coming. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?